And in spite of this, or perhaps because of it, death is the most uncanny thing. It is the thing that every single one of us will have to, will have to go to. Not go through, but go to. And yet it is the thing that we cannot think. You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. For the last few months, uh, His Eminence has been nagging me to to pick a topic uh, for uh, my sort of second talk, because I'll always do the the sacrament uh, talk, but I always give another, another talk as well. And I, I never came up with an answer for him, and I would just you know, sort of blow him off on a regular basis. And finally, he made the mistake of, of asking me once again uh, when I was in a particularly morbid ro- mo- mood, and I just said, well, I'm just going to talk about death. I figured I'd just run with it. Especially because I think it is a really important topic philosophically, theologically, historically. So I began to to think about what direction I wanted to approach it from. Did I want to look at it liturgically? Did I want to look at it pastorally? Did I want to look at it philosophically or theologically? And so I decided, yes. (laughs) Um, So I, I want to just start to frame this a little bit by talking about my favorite teaching moment in my entire career. I was teaching uh, Nietzsche at uh, McHenry County College outside of Chicago. And I was teaching a night class, and it was was already dark, and it was stormy, there was a thunderstorm. And so I was talking about about what makes us human. And I said, for Nietzsche, there's one thing that binds us all together. There's one thing that we will all share, and that's that we're all going to die. And there was a flash of lightning, a clap of thunder, and the lights went out. And about 10 seconds later, the lights went back on, and I was just sort of sitting on my desk going, well, I'm done. I'm, just, you know, I'm never going to top that. And I figured the only way that I'm going to top that is eventually I'm going to actually keel over in front of my own classroom. But hopefully that's not for a while. And that joke got a little less funny. Uh, in January when I had a cardiac event where I began to actually come face to face with my own mortality in a very distressing and upsetting sort of way. And so I began to to re-engage some of these questions of, of mortality and finity. In the context of this conclave, where the divine feminine is what's at stake, I began to think about the way in which death has its connections to a kind of of femininity, a kind of darkness, a kind of openness. And the ways in which certain kinds of phallocentric religion turn away from this, especially in focusing on a kind of material immortality that denies the efficacy of death. And I saw in that a denial of of something very, very feminine, of something that was rooted in in the body, 
and our experience of the world. And I think that as Gnostics in particular, we have a responsibility to look at death in a very, very different sort of way. Of course, this also has other ramifications for me and other reasons why it resonates with me. Uh, as most of you know, uh, my second wife, Juliana Eimer, uh, died very, very suddenly, a little over two years ago. And this was, in some sense, my first real face-to-face -face contact with death. And in some sense, because she and I had discussed this from a philosophical standpoint, there was a degree of comfort. There was a way that I was able to, to grapple with this because of that engagement. So there is something very, very personal for me about asking questions of death. And of course, it occurred to me that those questions are personal for everyone because this is what defines us. This is ultimately who we are. And so I wanted to, to try to engage that question to a certain extent. But there are other elements of it as well. Social aspects. How do we deal with death? How do we talk about death? The, the afterlife. And one of the things that I promised his eminence is that I would not throw the church under the bus theologically, that I wouldn't stake out some claim that were to be taken authoritatively because the church does not take a particular formal position or doctrinal position on the afterlife. And this is peculiar for a church not to, to come down in a concrete way on so important a topic. And more than once, we've encountered people in the Facebook group or uh, other social media avenues and they've said, well, what does the AJC teach about, about death? What do they teach about the afterlife? Do you believe in reincarnation? Do you believe in heaven and hell? And of course, we always beg off the question. And sometimes this is very, very frustrating for people because they think we're hiding something from them. They think that we've got some secret knowledge that we're, we're holding back for ourselves and only when you get up to you know, a certain level do we reveal what we know about the afterlife. And Well, we have revealed what we know about the afterlife, which is we don't. So I think that our position within the church is is important because of its openness and because it does not make doctrinal claims about something which, by definition, we can't really know anything about. It's not subject to any kind of conceptual knowledge. Of course, there are some liturgical references to death and to the dead. Uh, the Theocletian form, in that it borrows so extensively from the Orthodox liturgies has two separate specific prayers for the dead. We often remember the dead in our prayers in, in other forms of the liturgy. And the idea of praying for the dead is something that is an important part of the liturgical and spiritual life of the AJC. But that said, I don't think that this necessarily implies a particular theological position regarding 
the you know, post-existence of, of uh, the soul or something like that. But there are other aspects as well. There are ritual aspects to, to death that because this is a monumental moment in so many people's lives in, in that we see the people whom we love die, there has to be some recognition of that. And the church does have its rituals regarding death. As I've talked about in the past, uh, the rites of unction right, are closely associated with, uh, with death and dying, and also our, our funeral rites, which does explicitly talk about the afterlife. And lastly, I wanted to think about the esoteric dimensions of death, the way in which this plays out in the various esoteric bodies that many of us are uh, familiar with and participate in, the ways in which death is, is used thaumaturgically, um, and how it becomes part of initiatory practice as well. So I'm going to range quite widely here. And uh, if this is a little more disparate than usual, uh, I apologize for that. In our culture, we have a lot of difficulty dealing with death. And when I speak to my students about death, I always come back to a passage from Epictetus, the great Stoic. And so I want to read a passage, and it's an extended passage, but I think it says something really interesting about our attitudes towards death. He says, what do you want to be doing when death finds you? If I could choose, I would be found doing some heroic deed, important, charitable, and noble. But if I can't be doing something so honorable, let me hope at least for this. Something no one can stop me from doing, something I surely can do, that I may be found making myself better, learning to deal more wisely with the things of this world, working out my own tranquility, and thus doing exactly what I should be doing regarding every part of my life. If death finds me when I'm doing that, it's enough. Isn't it enough for a man to leave his life thinking this way? What life could be better and more noble? What death happier than his? And I began thinking about this idea of, of a happy death. Apologies to Camus. That what would it mean to have a good death or a happy death? And of course, the simple answer is that the happy death is the culmination of the happy life. That the life well lived culminates in a death that comes without regret, without remorse, without a sense of incompletion. And this, to me, seems to be what, what Epictetus is gesturing towards. But I like the way he starts. If I could choose the moment of my death, I would be doing something extraordinary. But I can't be doing extraordinary things all the time, so by definition. So let me be doing some small thing. Let me be doing something that is ordinary. Let me make myself better. Let me work out my own tranquility. And if death finds me when I'm doing that, well then that's, that's good enough. But we are terrified 
of looking death in the face. For good reason, right? It's something we can't quite conceptualize. Think of all of the euphemisms that we use to talk about death. Someone passed away. We lost them. They're no longer with us. They've moved on. Even the crass metaphors we use. Right? Somebody's pushing up daisies. Somebody kicked the bucket, bought the farm, bought a Buick, one of my personal favorites. I actually figured that one out eventually, that Buick used to make purses, so to buy a Buick is to take a ride in the hearse. When Dr. Reimer died, I considered it sort of a point of honor not to say she passed away, we lost her. Because she wasn't afraid of death. Death was simply part of existence for her. And so for me to be afraid of it, for me to feel the need to, to sugarcoat it, would have been a betrayal of that. Death is ultimately who we are. It's in the name. We're mortals. The Greeks call us the thnetoi, the ones who die. And so if this is as important as it would seem to be, we cannot shy away from it. We cannot turn away from it and deny it. The Apostolic Joanite Church does not take positions regarding the afterlife. But it does talk about the pastoral aspects of death and dying. Father Bray in Colorado has done extensive work in hospice care, of working with the dying and with families in the aftermath of death. The Christian tradition more widely takes death very, very seriously from a pastoral standpoint. Of the works of mercy, three concern death. That we should, among the corporal works of mercy, visit the sick, visit the dying, bury the dead, and among the spiritual works of mercy, to pray for the living and to pray for the dead. So from a, an institutional standpoint, death is always going to be particularly important. And we have our rituals that are specifically for the comforting of those who are grieving and for the reconciliation of those who are dead. Our funeral rites do seem to imply that there is at least something beyond this existence. And that, that doesn't take too much of a stretch within the context of a Christian church. It's explicitly stated, though, therefore must we endeavor to lay aside the thought of our personal loss and dwell only upon the great and most glorious gain. That death is a kind of gain. That in these funeral rites, we, we pray for the dead. We honor the dead. We memorialize the dead. But we comfort the living. We prepare a way for us to, to move on. In much the same way that in the sacrament of unction, we make ready the possibility of our 
congregants for, for death as our necessary culmination. But we also memorialize the dead. We pray for them at Mass. We visit graves or uh, you know, uh, scatter ashes. And all of these are ways for us to grapple with death. And to be sure, there are magical dimensions here. Necromancy, not to go too far afield, involves speaking with the dead or using the dead in order to, to open the book of nature. And the assumption seems to be, in general, that, that to be able to do this is to assume that there is some kind of relatively straightforward afterlife in which the dead have a perspective that we don't have and that they can share with us. But there are other forms of magical and esoteric practice that involve death. Ancestor worship. Uh, for example, the Iku in the Yoruba tradition, uh, which involves the, the worship of the ancestors, or the memorialization of the ancestors. And when I talk a little bit about the afterlife in just a moment, we'll talk a little bit about the Yoruba idea of, of reincarnation. But also the idea that in initiatory practice, we unite ourselves with those who have gone before. We unite ourselves with something that is greater than simply what sits before us in the chain of union, in the respect for the masters of the past. And we look to the symbology of death and rebirth in so many initiatory practices where initiation is a form of rebirth from death, from the tomb the chamber of reflection asks us to contemplate death. And so we can see that within the context of an organization like the AJC, death is going to play a particularly important role. But of all of the ideas that we grapple with regarding death, it is the idea of the afterlife that is the most challenging and the most puzzling. One of the most important stories in the Gospel of John, in uh, John 11, is the story of Lazarus, the four days dead, Lazarus of Bethany. Because this is the culmination of, of the signs that John indicates that uh, display forth the, the divinity of Christ. The fact that, that Jesus is able to raise the dead, that he has power over this thing that renders us all powerless, is what ultimately tips the scales, what ultimately leads to, to the, the people of Jerusalem coming out to see him to watch him enter into the city because he has done something that goes beyond the pale. If you cure the sick, if you heal somebody who's blind or lame, 
Well, doctors do that. That's a thing that happens. I, even turning water into wine, well, that's just sort of a trick, right? But when you raise the dead, well, then you've made it, right? You're at the top of the heap at that point in terms of wonder work. So Lazarus represents this incredibly important moment in the history of Jesus' ministry and a particularly potent sign for us regarding our relationship to, to death and resurrection. Because, of course, the raising of Lazarus presages the, the resurrection of Christ. But one of the things that we've talked about a couple of times already in, in this conclave is that resurrection has to be something that happens in life. That to be born again is something that happens here and now in our own practices. And this in particular, I think, is important because, because it challenges this simplistic notion that, well, death isn't real. Death isn't something that we actually have to deal with because ultimately it's illusory and it's only the death of the body and we're just going to go on and dwell in the, the bosom of Christ or something like that. But to demand that we die and are reborn here and now, that's something else. And ultimately, the idea of simple eternal life of resurrection after death, I think minimizes the way in which femininity plays out in the context of, of our spiritual life. Certainly within the Lazarus story, the role of the women is, is relegated to a kind of minority that, that because you know, the, 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 the grief and the anger and the pain that's suffered by, by Lazarus's family is ultimately wrong in error, is pointless, says, well, this death thing isn't something you really have to worry about. But it is precisely the women who take death seriously. It is particularly the women who, who understand that death is something that we have to look at. And so the question for me is, is there another way that we can look at death that allows us to, to engage it in, in a more authentic sort of way? A lot of this has to do with the way that we conceive of the soul. On the one hand, we have this sort of platonic idea of the soul. The soul is of a fundamentally different nature from the body. It is, uh, in, in many ways, the opposite of the body. It is part of a, a binary system of dichotomy. It is dualistic. The soul is moral. The soul is rational. The soul is that part of us that is not reducible to materiality. It is the enemy of materiality. And even though there is as he says in Book 10 of Republic, a bodily part of the soul, that is to say the emotions and the passions, that ultimately the soul is about overcoming those passions, about reaching up to dianoia and noesis, 
so that the soul, which is eternal and immortal, can do its thing unfettered by the physical body. But interestingly, Aristotle has a very different conception of the soul. The soul is, first of all, not unique to human beings. It's a vegetative soul. It's a soul of animals. And yet, it's different from the human soul. But the soul is not of a fundamentally different nature from the body. It is the living aspect of the body. It is, it is the body that is alive, the body that is lived, the body that is, that is inspired. And yes, it is, at its best, contemplative. It has this rational element. But it does raise some very, very serious concerns about the possibility that the soul may perish with the body. If the soul emerges from the complexity of material existence, that challenges the idea of immortality, at least in any simplistic or, or identical sort of way. So we begin to, to think in terms of, of other kinds of metaphors. That we don't just think about the ghost in the machine. We don't just think about this sort of roughly body-shaped thing that lives inside my body, and then once I'm dead, it'll sort of wander off somewhere. But rather, we begin to think of, of this vivifying force that... Maybe it's like the candle flame. Maybe it's like light. Maybe it's like essence. And all of a sudden, we have a very different kind of conception than the quasi-materialistic conception that we see in Plato. And I think that that is, is important. That the way that we conceptualize the soul the way that we conceptualize that thing which we ourselves in each case are has real ramifications for the way that we think about cosmic order, about the structure of the universe, about ontology and ontological difference. Of course, one of the most common ways of thinking about death as part of our human existence is to say that because the soul is separate from the body, it can be reincarnated. It can move from, from one body to another. That the body is, is like a suit of clothes that the soul can simply take off and put on at will. And the idea of reincarnation plays out across a wide variety of cultures in very, very different ways. Again, to refer to the Yoruba tradition, reincarnation happens within the family. And so genetic lines become very, very important. Within the Hindu and Buddhist traditions, it is the working out of the practices of the soul. In Judaism, we do see ideas of reincarnation, particularly great teachers become reincarnated. Uh, we're, we're told uh, by certain Jewish thinkers that 
that Moses is, is reincarnated at each uh, generation. So within that Judaic tradition, there is the idea of reincarnation. And while, in general, the Christian tradition is, is opposed to ideas of reincarnation, this isn't absolutely so. There's some reason to think that Origen, in particular, took ideas of reincarnation very, very seriously. And according to a fairly recent study, a quarter or more of Christians in Europe and North America believe in reincarnation and see no contradiction. Of course, one of the ideas that shapes Plato's conception of the soul is Pythagorean belief in reincarnation. This is, of course, one of the reasons that they are vegetarians. Don't eat that hamburger. It could have been grandma. So when we see this filtered through into Plato, particularly in uh, the myth of Ur, again in uh, book 10 of Republic, we see reincarnation as an essential element of, of, of the, the journey of the soul that the soul goes on this journey so that it might come to a new birth. And there is a description given of how the souls choose their next lives. And this has always been one of my favorite elements of the, uh, of the myth of Ur, because it, it's not by chance, it's not by nature, but it is by choice. There is some element of nature because the kind of life that you've lived determines to a certain extent the kinds of choices that you're making. There is an element of chance because random lots are thrown out that will uh, determine the order in which one is going to, to choose the next life. But ultimately, as the speaker for the maiden daughters of necessity tells us, you bear responsibility for your next life, the God has none. So the souls that are ready to be reincarnated are each you know, sort of randomly assigned a number. It's like going to the butcher, right? You just grab a number. And then the order in which your number comes is the order in which you pick from a range of souls that are, excuse me, a range of lives that have been laid out for your soul. The first chooser makes the big mistake. He's so excited to pick his next life that he just looks for the greatest tyranny, the, the, the life that's going to have the most power and wealth and all of this stuff. And he grabs that and says, ah, that's the one I want. And then, of course, he realizes that he's going to eat his children and do a whole bunch of other things. And so he regrets his choice almost right away. But it seems that some of the other souls in the telling of the myth of Ur learn from his mistake. Interestingly, Agamemnon chooses to become an eagle. So we see a, 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 a human going into an animal body. Similarly, uh, Orpheus takes on the life of a swan, a musical animal, but also an animal that, according to Greek thought at the time, gave birth on the male line, and Orpheus didn't want to be given birth to by the woman. 
Atalanta, the great huntress, chooses the life of a male athlete, and it's said that she can't pass it by. And it's Odysseus that ultimately makes the most interesting choice. He's the last one to pick, and he hunts around for the life that he wants. And finally, just sort of neglected by everyone else, he finds this tiny little life of a private man who does his own work, and that's all. And he says, this is the life I want. And this is the life that I would have chosen for myself, even if I had been first. So I'm not just picking this one because it's one of the few that are left. This is the one that I want. So what does this story actually tell us? I argue to my students very strenuously that this isn't actually Plato's idea of the afterlife. And in fact, we're told that at the very end of Republic, that we're told these stories in order to, in order to engender justice in our souls. But at the same time, there is this Pythagorean element that I think is hard to miss, because we see, we see uh, humans becoming animals, animals becoming humans, uh, men becoming women, women becoming men, so on and so forth. Heroes becoming, becoming private citizens, private citizens becoming tyrants. So there is this sense in which the soul is absolutely independent of the body, and the soul is a product of our choices. And ultimately, Socrates tells us at the very end, the very last paragraph of Book Ten of Republic, right? And so the tale was not lost, but saved, and it could save us. For if we are convinced by it, we'll live a good and just life because we want to have a, a, a good life in the next, uh, next go-round and so on and so forth. But if we are convinced by me, that is to say by Socrates' rational arguments, then we'll believe that the soul is immortal and able to suffer any evil and any good and will live a life of justice with reason. So we're told these stories about the afterlife primarily so that we can live this life better, so that we can make better choices here and now. But that's only one way of thinking about death that reduces it to merely a way station. What is much more common in the West and in Christianity is simply the idea of, of a next life. Not in a cyclical sense, but simply in a progressive sense. We're going to go on to heaven, or we're going to be dissolved into the infinite, or we'll get our you know, beer volcano and stripper factory, or whatever it is that the afterlife happens to promise you. And as I have been told by His Excellency, I cannot give this speech without a quote from Ezekiel. Ezekiel tells us, I will put my breath into you and you shall live again. Not again in a cyclical sense, but in a progressive one. Because 
if the soul is that part of us which we most truly are, then it is we that will go on. That death is not an end. That death is this sort of hiccup along the way of the life of the soul. And this is a way to deny the very thing that makes us most human. And I find that really concerning. And so I tried to begin to think something that would acknowledge the life of the soul, would acknowledge that materiality is not the be-all and end-all, not reduce all things to a kind of philosophical naturalism or anything like that, but at the same time would not deny the finitude which seemed to be so intimately connected with the ideas of femininity. And somewhat ironically, I think, I found this in Nietzsche and Heidegger, where death as our own most inevitability, our own most possibility, shows itself not as simply some unfortunate or inconvenient hiccup along a larger journey, but as the thing that allows us to most authentically be what we are. Because at the end of the day, no matter how committed we may be to the idea of free will, we all ultimately suffer our fate. The fate is that we are going to die. Imagine you come to, uh, to conclave tomorrow, and there is his eminence, and he looks very, very grave. And he says, Martanus is dead. Now, naturally, after the applause dies down, you might ask, how did he die? And there might be a million different explanations for how I died. You know, he was, you know, had his nose stuck in a book and walked into traffic and got run over. I'm giving that one about three to two. Um, you know, his, you know, blood pressure spiked, you know, because he, you know, smoked too much and, you know, uh, you know, his heart exploded. That one's not terribly long odds either. Um, he was hit by a piece of space junk that uh, fell out of the sky. That's the one I'm hoping for, right? Quick, painless, and it gets my name in the papers. So. But whatever it is, right, there are, there are a million different ways for me to get to that same point. But if you ask a different question, not how did Mar Thomas die, but why? Did Martamas die? Well, then there's only one answer. He was mortal. It's what mortals do. It's the thing that is who we are. And in spite of this, or perhaps because of it, Death is the most uncanny thing. It is the thing that every single one of us will have to, will have to go to. Not go through, but go to. 
and yet it is the thing that we cannot think. But death is always and never my death. My father died uh, just about 19 years ago. And I have to admit that today, I still find this sentence uncanny, disconcerting. My father is dead. Not because there's this wonderful person that was so much a part of my life and shaped me, made me in so many ways who I am that's no longer part of my life, but because that I know that at some point in the future, and it could be next week, it could be 20 years from now, God knows, I'd like it to be even longer. My kids are going to say that. And they're going to be talking about me. My son is going to say, my father is dead. And I can't quite wrap my head around that. I can't quite think that. Because death is always my death. Death is, is always an intimation, a recollection, a reminder of my own mortality, of my own finitude. And this is why it frustrates me so much when we refuse to say that somebody died. When my father died, I was very, very close to my father. Um, and um, lots of people sort of came out of the woodwork to offer their condolences to see what they could do for me. And if you've had somebody very, very close to you die, you know that this gets really annoying really fast. And you wish people would just leave you the hell alone to grieve. And so about two weeks after my father died, my phone rings. And it's some relative, I, I don't know, my third cousin twice removed. I wouldn't know the woman if I ran her over with my car. And she says, I was so sorry to hear that you lost your father. And the little hamster that runs the wheel inside my head decided to take a smoke break. And I said, you know what? I didn't lose him. You see, because I put him into a box and then I dug a great big hole and I took the box and I put it in the hole and then I took a whole bunch of dirt and I packed it on top of it. But I wasn't done. Then I took this big rock and I put his name on it and I put it over where the hole was. And I'm pretty sure he hasn't gone anywhere so I know where to find him. I didn't lose him. He died. Now this poor woman who wanted nothing in the world but to make me feel better gets this litany of abuse. In my defense, I did apologize. Though, it occurs to me I never heard from her again. Not sure why that is. But the point is that, that there's something fundamentally untrue about saying we lost them. Because it's not about us. That it is about that that loss is a loss of myself. And this is precisely why death is so uncanny. Uh, the, the German word uh, Freud uses it is unheimlich. It makes us, I'm overreading it here, of course, not at home. 
moment. It's the place where we are never at home. The place where it would be impossible for us to be at home. It's almost a kind of inversion of, of the Cartesian cogito. I think, therefore I am. Well, if I'm not, I can't think it. It's never something that I can conceptualize. It's never something I can experience. And this is why I said that death is something we have to go to, not something we go through, because we don't go through it. It's the limit. It's the finitude. It's the non-being. And all of the stories that we tell ourselves about the afterlife, about reincarnation, about metempsychosis, or whatever it is, are ways to avoid thinking that thing. Ways to avoid thinking that I am going to not be. And if we are going to live our lives authentically, we have to look at that. We have to take that seriously. We have to allow that darkness to become part of us. And this is what it would mean to have a happy death to have a happy life, to have an authentic life toward death. Not in that we, to use Heidegger's terminology, blindly stare towards the end. We don't want to become obsessed with death. But neither do we want to shy away from it. Seneca, another great Stoic, says that we ought to contemplate our death daily. Not so that we become obsessed with it, not so that it, it, this dark cloud follows us at all times, but, but because in doing so, it loses something of its power. It becomes ordinary. It becomes simply part of who we are. It becomes simply our own most possibility. Nietzsche suggests that there are really three ways that we can deal with the possibility of our own death. death. The first one, of course, is what I've been talking about up until this point, which is you stick your fingers in your ears and you go, la, 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 I'm not going to die. I am an immortal soul. I don't have to worry about death. When, you know, this death of the body comes, I'm going to continue on to do something else, and I'm still going to be me, so I don't have to worry about it. And that sounds a lot like pulling the wool over your own eyes. Of course, the alternative would be to go home, draw a nice warm bath, maybe light some candles, put on some Eric Satie, and slit your throat with a razor. And that sounds a lot more like flight than victory. So what what are we to do, according to Nietzsche, at least? We can't deny the reality of death, but neither can we just give in to it. And he says that the appropriate heroic response is to look our own mortality, to look our finitude right in the eye, and then act as if we were immortal. Not because we think we are, right? but precisely because we know we're not. 
And in doing so, we give meaning to life. And for me, this is the practice of the soul. This is what it means to have a soul, is to be capable of giving meaning to this life here and now. An existence that doesn't inherently have meaning. It has meaning because we, as souls, give it that meaning. We impart meaning to it. We make life meaningful. Not because we're pointing to something out there beyond us. And not because this is something special and glorious, but because this is where we find ourselves. And if we find ourselves here, we can do no better than to give that purpose, meaning, beauty. And I think that in embracing this aspect of death, we can experience something of the divine. Especially given that we have a tendency, those of us in this room and probably many of the people watching, to think of God negatively, kind of apophatic sort of move that, that says we can only talk about what God isn't. Then negation or absence becomes a marker for God. And what more profound instance of negation or lack do we have than our own most possibility of death? And I think that that to embrace this, to embrace a death that is really death, that neither sugarcoats it nor denies it nor, nor obsesses on it, is a way to counteract the shift away from, from thinking only in terms of, of my personality and to think about the world to think about something beyond ourselves. If I had to speculate, I do believe that, that the material world is, is merely one part of what it means for us to be human. But it is a part. And the soul is that part which gives meaning to this existence. And after death, I don't think that soul entirely goes away, but I can't help but think it's a little bit naive to think that it just sort of continues on unchanged. For how could something be unchanged by being in a body? How could something ever be the same? And so ultimately, if I wanted to tie this to a bigger theological question, it's about the incarnation. Because how can God remain the same after that experience of having a body? How could God be unchanged by that? So if we follow that same course, if we look our death 
in the face and act as if we were immortal. Which is, of course, exactly what Christ does on the cross. Then we have the possibility of a really authentic human life. Thank you very much. Uh, obviously, we want to open this up to, to any questions that you guys uh, might have on this cheery, cheery subject. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's a happy lecture. <laughs> Not to go first again, but it's a, it's a topic I have a lot of interest in, too. Perfect for Saturday today. <laughs> Somewhat gloomy Saturday. But um, there's a, even on YouTube, there's a great um, film. There's an English uh, scientist. I can't remember his name right now. But it's, he wrote a book and he did a lot of studies about what happens when you die. Mm. And uh, was some studies I did too about um, even modern times, he wanted to collect data to see what was the same, what was different yeah. across religions, cultures, all kinds of different people. And uh, it was really fascinating and uh, hospice caretakers and then people in hospice having the best data, the closest to death. Um, they, in the hospice nurses see a lot of people passing on. Yeah. And I got a chance to talk to a, a lot of them and it's, it's fascinating. The similarities, but um, it seemed that, I mean, almost Buddhist, that uh, attachment was the biggest factor, that the people that had the most trouble uh, dying, mm -hmm. uh, passing on, and, such were, were people that really felt like there's unresolved things or yeah. they felt guilty or um, you know this or, or that a lot of ones that felt like they'd accomplished what they were here to do they had the easiest transition yeah there's um, to go back to that, that, that passage from Epictetus there's a, a, a part that I cut out just now I'm going to have technical issues here um, but it, there, there's let me see if I can uh, pull this back up. Um, because I, I think he says something very, very, very close to this. Um, he says, if death finds me when I'm making my life better, it's enough if I can raise my hands up to God and say, I haven't neglected the talents you gave me. As much as I could manage, I haven't done anything to dishonor you. Have I ever blamed you for anything? Have I ever grumbled at anything? that happened or wished it were otherwise? Have I done anything that I wasn't supposed to do? This is what you made me for. I thank you for what you've given me, for the time during which I've used the things that are yours, that's enough. Take them back and put them where you want. They were all yours and you lent them to me. And there's this sense in which as long as I've done that, as long as I can, I can, I can say, yeah, okay, I'm done. Right, then, then that's that's how we have the happy death. It also talks about like identity. I like how it's put because it even about parts about himself that it's borrowed, that it's yeah. not his. Yeah, he can release those and, and let those go. Even about uh, emotional thought attachment to what we think about things and, and that put, having a need to possess those. That's exactly right. I mean, that, that if you want to talk about about unattachment, right? Considering everything that you are to be on loan is a great start. Right? That's, that's, it's not mine. And so I can't be attached to it because at some point I'm going to have to give it back. Yeah, I think I absolutely. It's fine. 
the ticking. <laughs> background, it's perfect. Well, how are you? Oh. I, I was just gonna say, we're, we're good for time, but I, I was just gonna mention, I mean, there, there, there are a couple things that kind of imply or I get one of the one of the things from the Buddhist perspective that I you know uh, uh, talking about the chemicals with my predecessor as a Buddhist now uh, you know you uh, you know you, you can't you can't talk about uh, emptiness or absence on its own you can't talk about what's inside the cup without the cup you take away the cup there, there, there's there, there's uh, uh, nothing there and so there there, there are things around it that, you know, while it's formless, there are things around it that imply a, a, a shape in the middle, a shape mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. graphed. And, and, you know, I was thinking about something in the, the Gospel of Thomas about, uh, you know, um, you know, knowing about the end or the, be or the beginning and what's in, what's in front of your face. I've always had a, the, I, I, I rotate like, like all human beings, I imagine being between um, you know, uh, being angry at uncertainty and being grateful for mm -hmm. uncertainty, because um, uh, if there was, if if there were, you know, uncertainty makes me anxious. Uncertainty makes everybody anxious to a certain degree. But if there was certainty, there wouldn't. Why bother? Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, the the, the idea that uncertainty creates uh, a, a, a why bother. That I've heard from some people seems insane to me. No, that seems backwards to me as well. Yeah. A, a, a why bother? Because if 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 you achieve a point of certainty, then then why get out of bed? Why why do anything? I had a, a friend of mine who who um, you know uh, has some has some means in the world, so you know hasn't really. Um, I mean, he he works, but he doesn't have to. And when we were younger, he had started his own business. And it didn't work out, so he just rolled it up and moved on to something else that yeah. he thought was interesting. And at one point in time, we sat down for coffee, and he said, I don't know why I can get these things to work. And I blurted out, well, if failure means nothing, then success probably means about just as much. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? Like, you know, if you, don't, if you don't have to worry about it, then you're not going to make the effort. So the, uncert the uncertainty. I have just enough certainty in my own experiences of the divine in life to do to 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 know if I'm roughly facing in the right direction, and uh, um, you know, and just enough uncertainty um, not to bank on. Yeah. To to to. There's improve. a there's a film, and maybe somebody can knows it and can uh, <clears throat> uh, sort of clue me in, um, where I think it, it, God's daughter is is living in New York. And she's she's having trouble with dad, and to get back at him uh, for for something, um, she releases into the world everybody the date that everybody's going to die, and so now everybody knows when they're going to die. And so if I know I'm not supposed to die for another ten years, I go throw myself off of a building, right? Why worry about it, right? That 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 kind of certainty then leads to this kind of nonchalance. That, that that nothing has meaning, you know, because because there's there's no risk, there's no danger, and I think at the end of the day, if an, initiation is about danger, and initiation is always about danger, um, 
that's what we're doing here, is an initiation. So it has to be dangerous. If there's no danger, it's not transformative. It, it's, it, it doesn't allow us to be anything more than, than what we were when we came in. Say the other benefit of, of you know being a Christian Gnostic that practice Buddhism in a variety of um, in initiatory traditions, and I think that's that's true to you know different levels for pretty much everybody here and everybody at home. Um, is that there is a point you know we we don't have to pretend that one tradition is the other, right? We don't have to pretend that you know everything leads to the same place or everything is just as good or or just as perfect. Right. But there are these rare points where everything just overlaps. Yeah, there are points uh, of convergence. Yeah. Well, talking about about near death experiences and the the cultural similarities, yeah. just are staggering. So I, I've always had the I've always had this idea that I mean you know going back to the beginning bit about. Thomas, that if you attend to what's in front of your face, the end will attend to itself. It will attend to itself. Right. I mean, I'm pretty sure, um, you know, um, serve your fellow humanity, don't be a dick, is common enough to enough traditions <clears throat> that if you start at that point... Um, That'll carry you a long way. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, As a professor of ethics, don't listen to that. I just, you know, <laughs> no, it's much more complicated than that. If, if uh, that, that, that said, uh, you know, if I get to somewhere or where I am going and I have the ability to, you know, uh, pop a couple quarters into a payphone, a relic or whatever, from wherever I am, I will be sure to let people know. Anything else? What time is it? 4.30 and 4.30. Okay. Thank you again.